All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Point Church. It's like old times. I'm back on the kids' table. Uh, I, uh, this is one of the things I'm thankful about. Um, you know, COVID the last couple of years were, were, were difficult years, but like we wouldn't be out this morning if it wasn't for COVID because like we learned how to meet outside. And so it's a, it's a huge blessing coming out here. A lot of memories. A um, couple of announcements. Uh, if you're new to church, there's something Christians do. I learned this when I became a pastor, actually. Um, on Easter, we say, uh, he is risen. So you respond, he is risen indeed. So I'm going to try it again. So he is risen. That's what we're supposed to do on Easter. Okay. Uh, so today is Donut Sunday, which, well, it's not actually Donut Sunday. There are donuts today. Next week is Donut Sunday, but there are donuts that will be brought out. When I was a kid and I went to church, one of the deals was if I stayed awake, I could have a donut. <laughs> if you fall asleep, you can still have a donut because I don't want to take the donuts home. So, so there are donuts afterwards. Um, we are, we're at the time of year where we start, you know, I don't know if anybody needs to get baptized or would like to get baptized this year, but there's sign-up sheets and information about baptism. So if you're interested in getting baptized, just put your name on the list and let me know and we'll, we'll figure out a day. We're looking at Sunday, June 12th as a, as far as a baptismal goes. So please sign up with that. And the children who go to Sunday school, I think they're going to go that way. Like, okay. Just follow the crowd wherever the kids who go, go. I know we ruined Debbie's plan who's teaching Sunday school today. When she saw that we were meeting outside, she's like, ooh, I'm going to have to rethink the hiding of the Easter eggs, where we're going to go. So I imagine I'm going to find Easter eggs in my office later today as they hide them. Okay, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and also John chapter 20. These are the two passages that we'll be in today. And as you're turning there, I will go ahead and uh, pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you for this day and its significance. Really, as Christians, we celebrate the risen Christ daily. Uh, We thank you, Lord, uh, for what you have done in our lives through Jesus. We thank you that he uh, conquered death, that he rose from the grave. And today, we take this time to, to celebrate and to remember Uh, this historical event of what Jesus accomplished. And so we thank you for this beautiful weather. We thank you for this beautiful setting that we have to to gather and to remember uh, the story about Jesus. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen. So this is a story. I have something in my throat, of course. Excuse me that we're very familiar with, uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We gather at least once a year uh, to, to go over and to review the story. Today's uh, purpose, in large part, is just to reflect upon the story, to read through the story in John chapter 20. But what is the significance? Why is it that Easter is so important? Why is it that that the risen Christ is so significant that it really changed human history. Our calendars, or how we uh, go about our calendar year, the days that people of faith gather to worship, we meet on a Sunday because this is the day uh, that the Lord rose from the grave. And so before we get into the story of John chapter 20, where we, we look at the account of Jesus rising from the, de- the dead, 
I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which talks about the significance. Why is this story so important? Um, in, in verse 15 or verse 17 of this chapter, we read that if Christ has not been risen, your faith is worthless. And so if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, the Bible tells us that there's absolutely no purpose of what we're doing here right now. There's of no value. But Paul makes the case that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. So we begin in verse 1. And Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So right out of the gate in in chapter 15, the apostle Paul, who is known as Saul, This is not a man who is a believer. This is actually a man who is hostile to the gospel. His aim in life following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was to go about and gather Jews that had converted to Christianity and given their lives to Christ, to arrest them, to to bind them, to bring them to jail, to beat them, and some to execute. We know that in Acts, Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, was done at the authority of Paul, that Paul was there as Stephen was executed. And so the man who writes this section about the gospel, this is not a man who is easily convinced. And he says to you, the gospel is defined as this, that according to scriptures, Jesus came to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. On the cross, the wrath that was due the world for their sins was placed upon him and he absorbed it in full. And then he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And the scriptures foretold that this would happen. He goes on to say in verse 5, And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to, to James And then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely aborn, he appeared to me also. So when Paul wrote this chapter, and it was passed around and circulated amongst the churches, he says, this is eyewitness testimony that these individuals, most of these people that saw the risen Christ, they're alive today. You can go to them. You can talk to them. You can ask them questions, and they will testify that they indeed saw Jesus executed And then they saw him and interacted with him after he rose from the dead. Most of these individuals, all of the apostles, they would stick to this story until they were executed. They were all killed for this testimony. This isn't something that we should take lightly. Paul continues, and he says, For I am the least of all the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The man who writes this was not an individual who is sold. He's not a part of anything. He was against the church. He was against the testimony of Christ. He denied that Jesus rose from the the grave. He was persecuting the church, killing those that said Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, 
God's grace means that God gave him something that he didn't deserve. Mercy is withholding wrath that's due us. And so Paul says, by God's grace, he gave to me that which I didn't deserve. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So Paul says, as the story unfolded, as the gospel went forth, as these apostles, and then the apostle Paul began to share the story and testify towards the risen Christ. These individuals that are reading this letter have come to the place in their lives where they trusted that what Jesus did on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection was true, and that he rose from the grave, and then they believed, they trusted. I remember during COVID standing on this table, one of them, well, it turned out to be okay, but I was trying to demonstrate faith. And I said, it's one thing to believe something, it's another thing to then put your trust in it. And so I'm standing on this kid's table, I decided in the moment that I would jump up as high as I can, but that's not very high. And I was going to demonstrate that I trusted that this table would hold me. Well, midway in the air, I was like, I should have probably practiced this, but it turns out that the table, it did hold me. And it was one thing to say I believed in the table. It was one thing to say, oh yeah, the table is structurally sound. I am not an engineer. I can't prove this. I have no, nothing to back it up. But I demonstrated my faith, my trust by actually jumping. I'm not going to do it today because my luck may run out. <clears throat> It worked really well that day, and I'll appreciate it. I have a story to tell. Um, verse 11, so they had believed, they'd come to faith and belief in Christ, and that he had risen from the grave. They were walking with him. Individuals came along, and they were trying to erode their faith, trying to disprove that Jesus actually rose from the grave. They were trying to take away from the message of the apostles and what the New Testament declares about Jesus conquering death at the grave. And in verse 12, Paul writes, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you all in San Diego where you should be is down at the beach on this day. You shouldn't be here. You're wasting your time. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is of no value. Some of you might be here by compulsion. A family member or friend said, please come to church. That's how I came to church. I didn't want to be there. Paul is making the case and he's going to continue this saying of all people, he was in that same camp that he didn't believe. And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, he acknowledges that this is this is this is of no value. He goes on to say in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be of false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. There is no placebo effect. I remember early in my auditing of Christianity, 
I was a young guy. I found myself going to a church that gave free pizza on Tuesday nights, and a bunch of my friends were going. And so I was kind of going there for the free pizza, and I was buying into sort of the story. I was, I was coming along and, and growing and, and getting close. And I remember this lady, I don't know who or what or why she was there, but I remember she was the one that was sharing that night in like a small port giving her story. And she was making the case that even if the gospel wasn't true, her life was so much better. And I remember thinking, I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good case. Like, you know, like maybe you're a better person, you live a good life. But then later on, when I came across this verse, the Bible does not claim that. The Bible doesn't endorse the placebo effect, saying, well, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if this isn't true, if the evidence doesn't support it, if there's no actual evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, go along with it because in your lives are better. You'll be better husbands, wives, children, students, employees, employers. The Bible says, no, absolutely not. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, you're wasting your time. You're still in your sins. You're separated from God and his wrath is coming for you eventually. He goes on to say in verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And he doesn't stop there. He's making this case. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we should be pitied. Where this is foolishness. But in verse 20, what he says is this huge declaration. The Apostle Paul, who was killing Christians, antagonizing the church, going after the church ruthlessly until Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and his whole life was turned upside down, or I should say right side up. He says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is a man who is the greatest skeptic. This is not an individual that was going along with some scheme to to fool the world. This was a man who in his hatred for Christianity was killing Christians. I don't know how much you dislike Christianity if you're here as an antagonist, but I doubt any of you have actually killed somebody because of their faith in Christ because you hate the gospel that much. But this individual who was writing this letter And much of the New Testament, that's how much he hated Christianity. That he was willing to seek after Christians and to execute them for their faith. But now he says this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive. He's making this case that the resurrection of Christ is the the most important thing that you have to consider in all of your life. You can turn over to John chapter 20. And as we're turning there, I do want to quote from C.S. Lewis, who said it well concerning the claims of the gospel. C.S. Lewis wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. There's no way to be in the middle of the road with Christianity. It means everything or it means nothing. And so for those of you who are here today 
potentially auditing Christianity, my prayer for you is that you would investigate the claims, that you would seek out the evidence. You travel to Israel today. The evidence is there as archaeologists dig. They still today find evidence supporting the claims of Christ, that this isn't some made-up story. And so as we come to the story in John chapter 20, I want us to enjoy the story. It's a powerful story. But at the end of the day, the significance of the story, the the, the significance is one day you're going to die. I hope that's not a spoiler alert for all of you. Like we all are going to die. We're going to face our maker. And when we stand before our creator, we're going to give an account for what we did with Jesus. You're either going to die apart from him in, in condemnation of your sins, or you're going to walk into glory rejoicing with your savior, your creator, covered by the blood of Christ for what he did for us. And it's available to all of us. So we come to the story. Jesus had been crucified. He'd been buried. He'd been there for a handful of days. The Sabbath restrictions didn't allow people to go to the graveyard or go to the tomb to visit the site where Jesus was. We pick up the story. Now on the first day of the week, that's a Sunday. This is why we worship on a Sunday. This is why those Jewish believers during the early church, they abandoned meeting on Saturdays and they began meeting on Sundays. Everything changed for them because of this day. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. We have to imagine this. We have to really place ourselves in her, in her feet. For many years, I served on the cemetery board here locally down the road. We never had a case where somebody came and dug up a grave in the middle of the night. Thankfully, I'll, I'll just add that just to be. But, but this scene is imagine you have a loved one who died. You bury them on a Friday, often in the burial process. You bury the loved one. They place him in the ground. And then you have to return a few days later or weeks later to place the stone if it's in-ground burial. And so this is, that they have the burial. Jesus is in the tomb. As soon as Mary can go, she returns to the, the tomb, which would have been a stone in a cave in, the, in this wall. For us, in our context, it would have been uh, you know, freshly dug up earth. And if we were to walk to the grave of our, of our loved one as we're getting close, I think it's over there. Why is there that, that, that mound of dirt? And as she gets closer, she's going to see that in the mound of dirt, in our case, that the body's gone. Like this isn't a pleasant story at this stage in the game. This is a terrifying a, a, a story that would fill her with wrath and anger and hurt and sorrow. She's going to pay her respects to this Jesus whom she loved deeply. But she gets there while it's still dark. The sun is about to rise. And she saw that this stone was already taken away from the tomb. So she immediately turned around to get help. So she ran and she came to find Simon Peter. And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the author of this book, the Apostle John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid them. 
So as she runs to them, as she tells them what happens, what does she not say? She doesn't say, oh, Jesus rose from the grave. That's not logical. That's not normal. That's not what normally happens. Like, it's not what ever happens. She says, somebody opened up the tomb and somebody has taken the body and who knows what they've done with it. This is horrible. And so Peter and the other disciple in verse 3 went forth and they were going to the tomb. And I know most of you heard me say this, but this is a hilarious little detail. Peter's the old man in the group. John's the young man in the group. Guys tend to be fairly competitive with one another. John, as he writes this letter, wants the world to know for history and accuracy that he outrun Peter to get to the tomb. So that Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple, the guy who's writing this, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrapper lying there, but he did not go in. There's something about death that doesn't sit right with us. I don't care what sort of uh, animal it is. It could be a human as soon as the life leaves a person, there's, there's something within us that kind of keeps us away. It's scary. A dead animal. It could be your, your loved pet of all your life, and suddenly you're like, ah, I got to go get some gloves. I don't want to touch this animal. There's something about death that's hardwired inside of us that says this isn't right. And so John gets there. He looks in. He saw the linen wrapper, the linen wrappers, the linen uh, wrappings. This is the Greek word for saw, which in the English we'll see the word saw three times. In the Greek, there's three different words. The first word is blepo. It's the idea of just a glance, just to look in, to see. He was there long enough and quick enough that he could see that Jesus wasn't there. Then, and he didn't go in, verse 6. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. Peter, the man who was older, probably had more experience with death than young John. He has courage to go in, and it fits his personality just to kind of go for it. Peter's the one who would always open his mouth, blurt out the things that he would say, just kind of go for it. So he, he quickly gets to the tomb, sees John hesitating. He enters the tomb, and in the tomb there would be a main a main sort of sitting area with a, a place on the right and a place on the left, like a bed, where not a bed, but a bed that was cut of stone where the bodies would remain. And so he goes in. <clears throat> the wind turned. I have to find my place here. What verse am I at? I'm, let's see. Here we go. Uh, verse six. And Simon Peter came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrapper, and he saw the linen wrappers lying there. So this, word is theoreo. It's where we get the word to theorize. And so what this sort of indicates that he came and he's looking around, he's, try, he's, try, he's trying to put together a theory for what's happening. Did somebody steal his body? He's not thinking, oh, he rose from the dead. We don't think, but we're not sure. Verse 6, and Simon Peter, I think we just read this, verse 7, and the faith, face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and he believed. And this Greek word is oida. 
This is, I get it. And so some indicate that they think that John went in there and he believed that he understood. Maybe he believed that the body was gone. Maybe he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. We're not quite sure. The next verse makes me sort of think that they didn't understand the resurrection because it says, for as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes. They get there, they see Mary was absolutely right. Jesus's body is gone. And they all just sort of scatter. They go back to their own homes. It doesn't say that they went to one location to kind of gather, regroup, come up with a meeting about how they're going to find Jesus's body. They were scattered, like Jesus said, they would be scattered earlier uh, three days at the Lord's Supper, that they would be scattered like sheep. But Mary, verse 11, she returns. This is so significant. If the Bible was a fraud, if the New Testament was a scam, if these guys were trying to pull something off on humanity, there is no way that the story would continue as it's about to continue. It continues with Mary. Mary, this woman who we don't know, there's something that she had a a checkered background. The scripture doesn't actually say that. But this is a woman. And a woman during this time would have zero testimony power. They, They could not speak in a court of law. They could not give testimony. And so if you're going to give a story about a risen Christ, if you were going to make this up, The first person that you would tell the story from is from a male perspective because the male perspective would be the one that would have authority, would be able to stand before a court of law. People would listen. But Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Significant. But Mary was standing outside of the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She's just in agony, crying. Wondering what's happening. What's the future look like? Where are they going to go from here? We know about Mary Magdalene that she was one of the only people that was with Jesus throughout the whole arrest, trial, crucifixion process at the cross. She loved Jesus deeply. And here she sits at the last place where she saw him, just absolutely devastated. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? I love some of these questions by angels in the Bible. They ask this question now when Jesus ascends into heaven and the the apostles watch him later up in the book of Acts. They're standing there kind of scratching their heads like, what's going on? The angels, I don't know if it's the same angels, they kind of appear and they're like, hey, what are you guys looking at? What's going on here? Like some of the questions are hilarious. And she's like, why are you weeping? I think they know the answer. So she said to them, but she's going to have this conversation with angels. I don't know if she thinks that she's hallucinating She's in deep sorrow. Who knows what she thinks, but the the scriptures continue the story. So she responds to them. And she says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she said this, she turned around 
saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. It was Jesus. She saw Jesus. As the story unfolds, we'll see that she thinks it's the gardener. And did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same question. She's weeping when she should be rejoicing. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she thinks he's the gardener, the caretaker of the cemetery. She's trying to be real respectful, real kind, even though she's angry. Because kindness, you can get more done. And she's like, Sir, if you moved his body, just let me know. I'll take care of it. Just, I don't want to inconvenience you. But this is my friend's body, and he's gone. Jesus says to her, Mary, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Suddenly the light bulb goes on in her head. She recognizes that this isn't the gardener, but this is Jesus. And he's alive. Maybe, or maybe she's seeing stuff. Who knows? But what does she do? It doesn't say what she did. But we see what Jesus does. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. So this is, this is uh, the scene in my head. Being a San Diegan, we often get these special videos on TV where there's like a service member who's deployed and the kid's at school and the kid doesn't know that dad or mom is going to be in the classroom and they do some little prank where the kid turns around. And I don't know if it's just me, But these are scenes that make me just cry like a little baby. The kid turns around or the wife turns around or whoever it is that's being surprised turns around. They see their loved one that's supposed to be in the Middle East. And what do they do? They grab onto them. They jump onto them. They hold them tightly. They don't want to let go. This is what she's doing to Jesus because what Jesus says is, Stop! Get off of me! Stop clinging! We got work to do, Mary! Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brethren. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. This is huge. This is the first time that Jesus refers to his Father as their Father because of the cross, because of the death, burial, and resurrection. Now this bridge is gapped, and they have fellowship with the Father. It was just a few nights earlier when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now Jesus has gone. He has given his life. Now they can access the Father because of what Jesus has done. And he says, I have to go to my Father and your Father. This is huge. My God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I know I don't watch football anymore since that team left San Diego. But back when that team was in San Diego, one of my favorite commercials, and I see it every time when I read this, was King Stallman Bail Bonds. King Stallman Bail Bonds would run this amazing commercial. It would show the door slam. It would show deadbolt, 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 chain around the door, like everything locked up. And then the screen would go dark. 
and it would say to San Diego people, you might not be happy that the Raiders are coming to town, but we sure are because we're going to get a bunch of business arresting Raiders fans. And so, so this is the scene. They're behind closed doors. They're afraid of the Jews. Everything is locked up. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to be arrested. They don't want to face the abuse. Mary said that she saw the risen Christ, but I don't know that they exactly were buying what she was selling. Sure, Mary, sure, Mary. It's been stressful. You need to take care of yourself. Get some food. You haven't eaten in three days. Get some sleep. Your mind is playing games on you. They're locked away behind closed doors. And Jesus came, not through the door. This is the risen Christ. He's no longer bearing the human body. He has his risen body. He's no longer playing by the rules of this earth. He has his full power, his full authority. And he came and he stood in their midst. And the first thing he says is the thing that would be most logical. Shalom. Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. I can see that you're terrified and seeing me. I can see that you're terrified because of the Jews. I can see that you're terrified because you fill in the blank of whatever it is. He says, Shalom. Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Shalom. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. It's the first inclination of the church's new mission. The Father has sent me into this world, and now I'm going to send you out. I have prepared you, and it's your time to go out to a lost world. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This, this verse is, is difficult. We don't necessarily have time to expound upon it, but this is a transitional, a, a transitional period. The Spirit has come in parts, but would come fully in Acts chapter 2. A new dispensation as we know it would begin as the Spirit would come in Acts chapter 2. Here's this transitional period where Jesus is now transitioning the apostles. And then in verse 24, another funny section of scripture. We give Thomas such a bad rap. We harass him. But the reality is, is he's acting and behaving just like any one of us who are rational would respond. He saw Jesus crucified. He's been hiding. They ask, can you go out and grab some sandwiches for us because we're afraid of the Jews? I don't know that he actually was getting sandwiches. This is just where my mind always goes. He's out doing something separated from them and he comes back after Jesus is gone. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, which means he was a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This seems completely reasonable to me, right? Well, maybe you guys have more faith than I do. 
But I walk in, all my buddies say, hey, yeah, that guy, you know, Jesus, we saw him all crucified and in the grave, and he just appeared. My first question is, well, if he appeared to you, then where is he right now? Like, no, 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 really. We touched his hands. We put our hands in his side. We saw this. He's like, that's great. Show him to me. And they're like, no, no, we, he didn't say when he's coming back. He just, he was here. We, you know, like, and so we refer to Thomas as the doubting one. I think we should refer to Thomas as the reasonable one. But maybe that's because I have a, a propensity to doubt. I coined the word skeptimistic. I'm a pessimist and I'm skeptical. And so those two together make skeptimistic. And I created that word and I love that word. And I'm waiting to see it put in the dictionary someday. So I... I stand with Thomas. If I show up and a bunch of people say, well, the per- he's risen from the dead. And it's like, well, why isn't he still here? He's not there. And so we're told in verse 26, after eight days, eight days go by. I imagine the disciples were nagging him and convincing him. We saw him. We saw him. We did all this stuff. And Thomas is like, well, where is he? I don't see him. You guys aren't making a very strong case. His disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came in the doors, having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Shalom. Peace is the Greek word or the English word for the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but be believing. I love this. I don't see Jesus in this story coming condescending to Thomas. What I see is Jesus coming into a, a, a coming to an individual that has some questions, has some doubts, has some concerns, and Jesus appears and he says, "You need some reassurance. Here's the reassurance. Touch my hands, fill my side. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing." And so you might be here today with some questions and I would, in, I would encourage you to investigate, seek out God and say, God, show me all this evidence, these signs. Read a book like The Case for Christ or A Reason for God by Tim Keller. There are tons of books out there going over the evidence for a risen Christ and I would encourage you to go down that road. I don't necessarily think that Jesus will appear to you, let you touch his hands and his signs, but... Maybe that's because I'm more like Thomas, but maybe he can. He has to people in the past, but I can assure you that there is more evidence for Jesus than there is against Jesus. And so Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. That's us. That's us in this room. We're not even in this room, in this setting. We haven't actually seen and touched the risen Christ, but we have looked at the evidence and we've come to a place where we can respond by faith and believe in him. And that's my prayer, is that you would be able to examine the evidence and come to the place where you can reach out by faith and believe upon Christ and be moved from death to life in him. This is what the writer of this book wants. He goes on to say in verse 30, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the most pressing question is this, do you have life in Jesus' name? If you are a believer, don't let this life, this world beat you down. The, the believing is present, active, indicative that we would continue to be believing, that we would continue to be placing our faith in Christ. This transaction is a, is a, is a one-time moment where we believe. But the Christian life is an ongoing believing that every day, we wake up and we say, you know what, Lord, I believe that you're real, that you've risen from the grave. I believe that you're greater than my problems. I believe that you have something in store for me today. Lord, help me to live this life today. And if you're unbelieving, your greatest problem in this life is not the money in your bank account, is not the cancer that you're battling, is, is not the whatever it is that you're struggling with. Your greatest dilemma in this life is your separation from God. Because our time here is, is like a vapor. And we will stand before our creator. And we will give an account. And what he's going to ask you is, what did you do with Jesus? And so my prayer is that you would reach the place in your life where you respond in faith. And that you would be moved from the body of Adam into the body of Christ. And I'm going to close today, again, with the words of C.S. Lewis. Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for today's story. We thank you as we gather to worship the risen Christ. I thank you for the words of Paul that we began with, this great persecutor of the church, who killed Christians, who bound them, arrested them, made their lives miserable. I thank you that you used this man to reach the Gentiles. That you met him on the road to Damascus, that you utterly transformed his life. That he went from unbelieving to believing in a powerful way. And that he tells us, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our time here is simply vanity. It's of no value. And so, Father, I pray that as we read and investigate this story, as maybe we identify with Thomas, Lord, that you would help us to not just end here, but that we would continue our journey of seeking the evidence, looking at the things that Jesus left behind, looking at the scriptures, looking at great minds over human history that have testified to the facts but ultimately, we will never be able to bridge this gap of new life with you apart from faith. And so, Lord, for those in this place who have doubts, have concerns, have questions, I pray, Father, that you would take these questions, take these doubts, hear them as prayers, help them in their journey so that they could answer these questions, so that they can come to a place where they can reasonably respond in faith, trusting that Jesus is indeed alive. And Father, for those of us who have believed, who have been transformed by the gospel, we thank you. We thank you for the cross that the world sees as foolishness. But to those of us who have been saved and are being saved, we understand it and see it and have experienced it as the power of God, your power, 
So, Lord, we love you. We pray this day as we celebrate the risen Christ that you would go before us. We thank you for these donuts which we are about to receive. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.